Fantastic. So welcome y bien. Buenos días, buenas noches, um, wherever you might be, it'll be different to another edition of Machete Mate, a revolutionary Latinx podcast for the Latinx community, not only in La Patria Grande, but in the global diaspora. Um, I'm Leroy, and of course with me, as always, the Gracai brothers, Austin and T. Say hello, fellas. Yeah, buddy. What's up? Hey, hey. Um, before we get started, um, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the lands that I'm currently on. For me, it's the Wurundjeri people, and for you guys, it's the... Yes, uh, we are from the land of the Rappahannock people. All right, fantastic. It's always important to um, pay respects to the traditional owners because the first step to liberation and fighting for those things is to acknowledge your complicity in it. And as much as we like to think that we're woke and all this stuff... Um, we have to acknowledge our part in it as well. Um, also, um, especially with what we're talking about today, I want to acknowledge and um, just a note out to any Aboriginal listeners that we will be discussing the lives of deceased um, Aboriginal folks. Um, so um, just a warning to you. Um, the reason why that's important is the topic we're talking about today that I'm super excited, I know T is like over the moon that we're gonna be talking about this because it's something that not many people outside of Australia um, actually know about. We'll be talking about the Aboriginal tent embassy, um, how that came about, why that's important, why is it significant in the greater context, I guess, of uh, the Australian struggle for liberation and globally. Um, but before we get into any of that, um, how's it going, guys? How you guys been? Back to work, yeah? Yeah, I'm sure T can talk a little bit about uh, how our Shitty state government has um, um, well, just he has some, doesn't give a fuck he has about fairly strong opinions. Yeah, so basically, I was okay. So I was I'm a retail salesperson, okay, Same. in Virginia, um, and we had shut down for a little bit at the beginning of this plague, and then recently we got word uh, that we'd be going back to work, and it's it's really funny because you know with the way uh the rules are set up you know us working uh we're required to have uh masks and gloves of course you know they before we went back to work they had promised oh we're gonna have masks and cleaning supplies and gloves and all this stuff um that shit only showed up a few days ago even though we've been back on for about three weeks now um Customers aren't required to have masks because it's not a rule in uh, uh, the state of Virginia. Uh, and also, you know, I, from what I, if I remember correctly, uh, those rules will be relaxed soon at the end of the month. And I fully suspect that okay. my bosses are going to pressure us to go back to uh, working without masks, gloves, and shit like that. Just, you know, just to, to put the customers at ease, you know, that this uh, crisis has passed because, you know, viruses listen to uh, fucking corporate bottom lines, of course. 
course. Yeah, That's... and uh, <laughs> and I think it's important to note something that I was reading the other day um, in uh, a local, uh, like a local publication here in Virginia, was how all but one of the deaths in Richmond were from the black community. Yeah, it's a, it's how... like 15 out of 16, right? Something like that. Exactly. Yep. And how in Fairfax County, which is in Northern Virginia and is uh, the most populous county in Virginia, how in Fairfax, the Hispanic population is just around 17%, yet the number of cases is 56% Hispanic. You know, I, (laughs) I wonder how that dynamic plays out. And it's just... It's a, a testament to how much the government, the fact that the governor here is pushing or is beginning to put roll out his his plan for reopening or whatever. Um, it's just a testament to how he doesn't give a fuck about black people. He doesn't give a fuck about Latinx people. And we know damn well if the majority of these cases and these deaths were white people, it would be an entirely different story. Wait, wait a That's second. True. Are you telling me that the governor that, you know, was caught in blackface in his yearbook in college, you're telling me he doesn't give a fuck about black people? Get the <laughs> fuck out of here. I don't believe that. That's bullshit. Yes, astonishing. Uh, yeah, right? Austin, relax now, okay? All right. Don't, don't yeah. go there. Relax. Yeah, I need to give Governor Blackface the benefit of the doubt. Sorry. Why is everything racism with you, man? <laughs> <laughs> nah. Yeah, um, also, um, yeah, real quick, I... Um, I should say, you know, in my job, I'm lucky to be able to work from home, but I do work with uh, a lot of workers in Northern Virginia and then generally throughout Virginia. And uh, just the the horror stories that that people, you know, people are afraid to go back to work, justifiably so, justifiably so. And the county governments don't give a fuck. The state government doesn't give a fuck. The federal government sure doesn't give a fuck. And it's I I know a lot of people have made this analogy, but it's really we are being uh, sacrificed to the altar of the economy gods. You know, it's you know, who gives it's these people can put their lives on the line just so the economy can can stay in the green. Right. You know, fuck us. And it's yeah, it's. It's it's been it's been a rough time over here. How about how about you? We should ask how how are things. Um, I was gonna yeah, say just quickly what you're saying. On you also see it in how it's being framed, right? So all the frontline people, all the quote unquote essential workers, they're being framed as heroes, almost as a justification later down the road of their sacrifice. You know what I mean? So it's not like all oh, these workers are all oh, these heroes are putting themselves like they're not putting themselves like they're being forced. They're being almost martyred into this. Which is absolutely bullshit. And like you said, like, it's just like a sacrifice to the gods of capital. Um, exactly, dude. It's it's literally. I'm glad you raised that because it is literally like we're in this fucked up religious death cult, and it's just like, oh, how brave of this person to offer themselves as tribute. <laughs> See, if I, if I'm gonna be a fucking essential worker and a hero, I want a goddamn thin line flag and my own fucking like <laughs> holiday. Yeah, I think sake. I think you posted something some time ago, like like about that, about the, the thin retail worker line or whatever. Yeah, the the shit brown line. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> um, <fucked> up. <laughs> but yeah, here in Australia, it's been 
I gotta admit, it's been a little bit better than over there. So, um, most things have closed, like the cafes and a lot of retail has closed. But the retail that has stayed open, they have implemented um, social distancing. So, um, with like placards and like um, posters saying like I'll stay one and a half meters apart, um, X's on the floor. So when you line up and stuff like that. But um, what what really shits me and it's something that um, I'm sure nobody in the U.S. has heard about is um, to sort of counteract any sort of economical loss to workers and to, I should say, to companies, the company rolled out this um, law, this program called JobKeeper. So basically, um, for a company to qualify for this, they if they make under a billion dollars a year, if their turnover over the course of this whole situation has gone down um, over 30%, then for every employee that they have, they will be given fifteen hundred dollars to pay oh the, to pay the worker, but that's a government subsidy. So it isn't like the money is given to the company to do as they see fit. It's specifically to go to each employee. Oh um, shit! Which which is which is which sounds good from a like a government to a citizen you know perspective, but um, this payment is obviously so that the employees can stay at home and not be in the middle of this fucking disease and catch it and kill half the world. So what companies are actually doing is they're still making their employees come to work. So essentially the companies are taking free labor from their employees because they don't have to pay them now. So any wage, any salary is already taken care about taken care of from the government. So we're still having to go to work, still being, you know, put in the line of all this but the company is making 100% profit off of our labor um and a lot of companies are being really dodgy about it as well my father-in-law if i understood what he was telling me correctly is that when this law was rolling out they actually fired enough people to get just beneath the threshold so they fired enough people so the production dropped just enough below the 30% so that then they don't have to worry about anybody else's wages and still make the full-timers go to work. So my father-in-law has still been going to work. He's a full-timer, so he didn't lose his job. He's not getting a penny from his gut from his company. He's just getting that government payment. So he's still on the front lines working, not getting anything from the company, and the company's making profit off. They're almost better off now than they were beforehand, which is it's fucking bullshit. Like they're still exploiting the workers. And I mean, if you're a company, what was that? Exactly, exactly. So basically, they're taking advantage of this for their bottom line as well. They don't give a shit about our safety or anything. This was an opportunity for them to take advantage of this government program to still make money. And then the companies are obviously like, oh, look, um, we, if you come to work, look, you're doing us a favor. You know, there still needs to be a company around when all this falls back and blah, blah, blah. Thank you so much for your service. But it's like, you're not paying me, but I don't have an option to not come to work. Because if you think about it, I could literally turn around and say, look, you're not paying me. So I have no, there's nothing motivating me to come to work because I can sit at home, get this government payment that essentially is my tax dollars coming back to me. And what's funny is um, I'm in management, retail management. So I make a little bit more than that $1,500. So that payment it's only $1,500 and it's taxed. If I want to make my entire salary, then I can dip into my annual leave to top up. But I'm still going to work, which means I'm almost redeeming annual leave 
to go to work. Defeating what? the whole purpose of having that. Yeah. It's um it's it's, it's truly remarkable. It's it's I can't explain to you how angry it makes me. And I'm being asked to roster on some of the casuals to come to work, even though they have no incentive to come to work. They're saying, oh, but like, you know, the only reason they're getting this payment is because they're employed with the company. So they have an obligation. I'm like, they don't have a fucking obligation to come to work because you're not paying them. Like, you're not paying them. They're not, you're, all you're asking is for free labor. You're asking for them to provide their free labor yeah. to you when they could turn around and say, I don't want to come to work. And then they're floating the whole thing of, oh, well, you know, they refused and maybe down the line, that's something we can look at in terms of shifts or whatever. So they're trying to extort free labor from these workers by threatening them down the line after all this. Exactly. It's It's, just another example of how our system, the, you know, the world system or whatever the fuck we want to call it, just it it literally is built in the the system the incentivizing of fucking over workers literally yeah. at every turn like they if they skirt the rules more profits and let for the fucking executives and less for the workers you know and this whole right. crisis has just exposed a lot of those contradictions within our system and it's 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 just remarkable how it's so similar across the world as well because i've heard as far as like uh uh, as far as people getting fucked over like that, I've heard similar situations with some of the workers that I that I talk to and that I work with here in Northern Virginia. Um, just people being forced to like <laughs> to utilize their leave and basically getting nothing out of it. Um, it's yeah. pretty fucked up. Because on that note, like if it was a fact that like this government program didn't exist and I couldn't come to work and like look, if you want to get paid, you have to dip into your leave. I can understand that. But the fact that I have to dip into it, but still go to work, like exactly, it's absurd. Exactly, it's, it's fucking ridiculous. I don't know. Oh, and you've got um, I'm just getting to end you, so we'll just jump into it, yeah. So on that, talking about Australia, um, we'll talk a little bit now about today's topic. So, um, usually when you're talking about the history of an event or a moment especially those of us with a materialist conception of history and I suppose of um, reality in the grand picture, you start at the beginning, right? I mean, nothing really has a definite beginning, every moment being sort of a culmination of a whole series of previous moments. But you pick a spot as a jumping off point, right? I don't personally, I have almost a compulsion, I'd say, to account for as much detail as possible and all the relevant sort of randomness and then creating for myself a Wikipedia hole in my head. But the problem we face with what we're talking about today is the sheer magnitude of history, a history defined by our subjects as time immemorial, a time in the past that was so long ago that people have no knowledge or memory of it. I I would say that outside of Australia, and maybe we can extend this to Oceania at large, most people unfortunately only know, however vague, two things about Aboriginal Australian people. One is that to some degree, they were victims of settler colonialism. Of course, we argue that they are victims, present tense. And second, that they've been in Australia for a really long time, some 60 to 80,000 years. So if we think of Aboriginal history as the entirety of Das Kapital by Karl Marx, happy birthday, by the way, um, white people only show up on like the last page of volume three. So if we start at the quote, proper beginning, I'd be here talking forever. I've only got 
15 minutes as the setup man here. So for our purposes, our beginning will be the 29th of April, 1770, the day future Hawaiian dinner guest James Cook made landfall in Terra Australis. Um, before we get into it, though, there are a few things that we need to understand and keep in mind to properly appreciate the Aboriginal struggle. For Aboriginal folks and similarly to Indigenous folks everywhere, Aboriginality is inextricably connected to the lands. So their language, their culture, their dreaming. And by this, I mean how they conceive their very existence, not only of themselves, but of the universe. So think creation stories, but stretching throughout time to the present. The land and its fruits are literally everything. Distancing amounts to, to genocide. There are also two legal concepts that we need to know. Um, that form the root of all Aboriginal struggle, including the countless court cases. First is terra nullius, which roughly translates to land belonging to no one and refers to land that is deemed uninhabited and or um, unoccupied, specific at the point of, quote, discovery. This um, we'll see served as a crown justification for the settlement and colonization of Australia. The second concept is native title or Aboriginal title, which refers to the right of indigenous peoples to own their traditional lands and waters. These are ideas that we not only see in Australia, but in settler colonies the world over. So Canada, the U.S., etc. Um, now that we have that in our back pocket, we'll just jump into the actual history. Um, so the pendejo James Cook arrives in Terra Australis in 1770, makes contact with some locals, charts the coast, um, the east coast that is, runs into the Great Barrier Reef, makes his way up to the Torres Strait Islands, which are located between Australia and New Guinea, obviously claiming it all for His Majesty King George III and Great Britain along the way. He spends a few months and then leaves. Um, it isn't actually until the 26th of January, 1788, which, of course, colonizers of Australia celebrate as Australia Day, but the rest of us mourn as Invasion Day, that white people begin settling in Australia. Again, based on the idea of terra nullius, because, you know, private property needs to be respected, but Australia was free real estate, right? Um, we'll get to more of that in a second. But also notice this was after Britain lost her American colonies. So someone was in the market for lost revenue and an open-air prison. Um, let's fast forward a bit. So past the penal colony days, the frontier wars, the establishment of the reserve system, introduction of so-called protection laws, Federation of Australia, the stolen generations, etc., etc. Uh, historians and folks who were around at the time point to two specific events as catalysts for the establishment of the tent embassy. First is a Supreme Court case in the Northern Territory. And the second is an Aboriginal worker strike, also in the Northern Territory. So all you labor nerds, um, you'll really enjoy that. Um, let's start with the court case. The case in question is Miller Palm versus Nabaco and the Commonwealth of Australia. In December 1968, the Yolngu people of Yuraka, the traditional owners of the Gulf Peninsula in Arnhem Land in Northern Territory, sued Nabaco Corporation and by extension the Commonwealth government over the granting of a 12-year bauxite mining lease in their lands. But before all of this, in, six, in 1963, the same Yongnu people brought a petition before the Commonwealth government in response to the theft by the Commonwealth of over 300 square kilometers of their land with the purpose of granting mining leases for bauxite mining. This, naturally, was done without consultation of the traditional owners 
and the elders were worried about the impact that this would have on the land and access to their sacred sites, of course. This became known as the First Iraqo Petition and resulted in Parliament establishing the Select Committee on Grievances of Iraqo Aborigines on Land Reserve, which um, actually acknowledged the claimed rights of the Yongu people and recommended to Parliament that compensation be organized, sacred sites be protected, and that a committee be set up to continue to monitor the mining projects. This was all colonial bullshit, of course, because the Commonwealth went ahead with its leases at the expense of the natives anyway. Um, in the case, the Yagnu people claimed that they had legal and sovereign rights over the land and sought a declaration to occupy their land free of interference of their native title rights. See, that's a vocab word coming back. Uh, they asserted that they held communal native title since time immemorial, in other words, since the beginning of forever, and it had not been extinguished, or this right to the lands hadn't expired, so to speak. So, therefore, it should be recognized as an enforceable proprietary right. In plain speak, they've been there forever, so it's their land to use however they want. Of course, the cracker judge, uh, Justin Blackburn, didn't see it that way, at least legally. Uh, Justice Blackburn found that the Yogyu people could not prevent mining on their lands. He categorically held that native title was not part of the law of Australia and went on to add that even had it existed, any native title rights were extinguished. Um, Blackburn rejected the claim on the basis that, and listen to this, a doctrine of common law native title had no place in a settled colony except under the express statutory provisions, i.e. in the recognition doctrine. Under the recognition doctrine, Pre-existing interests were not recognized unless they were rights of private property and while the community possessed a legal system, it was not proven that under that legal system, the claimant clans possessed such rights. The clan's relationship to the land was therefore not a right in connection with the land under the Lands Acquisition Act. And on the balance of probabilities, the applicants had not shown that in 1788, their ancestors had the same links to the same areas of land that they were now claiming. Um, in effect, he rejected the doctrine of Aboriginal title, recognizing that in the law of the time of British colonization of Australia, there was a distinction between settled colonies, where the land being, quote, desert and uncultivated, end quote, was claimed by right of occupancy and conquered or ceded colonies. So the term desert and uncultivated included territory in which resided, and I quote, uncivilized inhabitants in a primitive state of society, end quote. The decision noted that the crown had the power to extinguish native title if it existed. So basically, it was declared that these people had no right to ownership of their lands as it hadn't existed as private property. Or at the very least, it couldn't be proven that this mob's legal system recognized it as such. And it couldn't be proven that a people who practiced fucking oral tradition could provide proof that they had in fact occupied the land at the time of invasion. So in effect, the crown owned the land. Upon federation, the commonwealth took ownership and can do with it as it pleases. This is settler colonialism within a liberal democracy. The legislated imposition of Western modes of production on a colonized people at their expense. It's fucking ridiculous. A few positives, if you want to I guess, call it that, did come from this, however. The Woodward World Commission was set up, which eventually led to the recognition of Aboriginal land rights in the Northern Territory. A Royal Commission is sort of like a federal public inquiry into a certain issue. This Land Rights Act was drafted by then Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, who was CIA coup 
allegedly, before it could be passed into law. But a bit more on him a little bit later. Um, now, the second event that's generally associated with the establishment of the tent embassy is the absolutely badass Gurindji strike, also known as the Waithill Walkoff. Um, in 1883, the colonial government granted a pastoralist, so pretty much a glorified rancher, by the name of Nathaniel Buchanan, about 3,000 square kilometers of land in the Northern Territory, in which he then established a cattle and sheep ranch at Wave Hill. Now, what you need to realize is that this was happening all over Australia. Traditional lands were being sold or leased to capital interest. Aboriginal people would all of a sudden wake up and find that the lands that fed them, clothed them, the waters that quenched them and cleansed them for tens of thousands of years were now fenced off inaccessible, off-limits. They no longer could access their sacred sites. They were distanced. So this was and is genocide. So now if they wanted to have some semblance of a connection to their lands, their only option was to work on these ranches and stations, most often for nothing. But let's not get it twisted, though. There was incomprehensible physical brutality as well. Free labor under physical repression, that seems to be a common theme. Where, where have we heard that before? Um, in 1913, a law was passed which required the compensation of Aboriginal workers through commodities like food, tobacco, clothes, tea, etc., which, as you can imagine, rarely actually happened. Um, jumped to 1965, the North Australia Workers' Union applied to have discriminatory sections removed from the law, improving the franchise of Aboriginal workers. Of course, the pastoralists and all the capital interests opposed this due to their fucking profits they suggested a gradual implementation actually arguing that average aboriginal people wouldn't be able to handle or adjust to such a large wage increase so a three-year rollout was agreed to saving the pastoralists about six million dollars um jump back to 1914 the Wave Hill Station was leased to Vesti Brothers International, a UK-based meatpacking company with operations all over South America as well. They immediately refused to pay proper wages or adhere to the, recent, the recently passed law. I mean, the whole point of being there was cheap land and cheap labor. So in 1966, Vincent Lingiari, a Gurindji man who was fed up with the working conditions in Wave Hill Station and with the delay of the commission's rollout of the new labor agreement, led 200 of his fellow workers, said fuck this shit, and walked off the job. An act that was actually supported by unionists across Australia. Um, in 1967, just a few months later, they moved their camp to Daguragu, or Wadi Creek, to be near their sacred sites. Now, this was really important because it showed that this was more than just about work conditions. This was about land rights, about reclamation of their country and home and, and culture. Um, they petitioned the governor general to allow them to lease 1,300 square kilometers of land around Daguragu to be run cooperatively between the Gurindji and the government, stating, we feel that morally the land is ours and should be returned to us because, of course, the governor general rejected the petition, of course, but they continued to occupy the land, which was a violation of the colonial law of Australia because technically the land um, the Vesey brothers still had rights to this land. The strike actually lasted seven years. Uh, when his Labour Party came into power in 1972, after the establishment of the embassy, our old friend Gough Whitlam announced that his government would begin to give Aboriginal people 
rights to their lands. In 1973, the original lease expired, and there were two new ones drafted up, uh, one for the Vesey brothers and one to the Gurindji through their Muramula Gurindji company. In 1975, Gulf Whitlam literally handed back land to Vincent Langiari in the now iconic moment where Whitlam grabbed earth. So he literally picked up dirt from the ground and poured it into Lingiari's hands, saying, uh, Vincent Lingiari, I solemnly hand you these deeds as proof in Australian law that these lands belong to the Gurindji people. Um, again, no doubt um, influencing these events, but this did come after the embassy was established. So um, let's just let's find out how it was established. Do you take it away? Yes, uh, real quick. Thank you so much for that, uh, Leroy. That was an excellent introduction. Um, I real quick before I get into uh, talking about the ten embassy establishment, I want to apologize for any mispronunciations I may make. Um, I am a dumbass. Okay. <clears throat> On the twenty sixth of January, nineteen seventy two. Called Australia Day, but known to the indigenous as Invasion Day. The very day after Liberal Prime Minister McMahon had made a ridiculous, laughable compromise where he promised that his proposal was that he would, the Aboriginal people would be able to lease their land, uh, but they wouldn't own the mineral rights. Uh, The day after that happened, uh, four Aboriginal men, Billy Craig, Michael Anderson, Bertie Williams, Tony Corey, all associated with the Red Fern Black Power Movement, drove over in Communist Party photographer Noel Hazard's car to the old Parliament House in Canberra, then the seat of the federal government. Armed with an umbrella and a tent they had to raise money to buy, they struck ground, and the first Aboriginal tent embassy began. Young militants held signs bearing the words, Land now, not least tomorrow, and, more provocatively, Land rights now or else. Why an embassy? Gary Foley, an indigenous organizer, was quoted years later as saying, aliens in our own land. So like other aliens, we needed an embassy, end quote. Media attention was almost immediate, and in the coming weeks, many supporters, Aboriginal and white, would join them, including famed activists and respected leaders like Roberta Sykes, Gary Foley, Chicka Dixon, Pearl Gibbs, and Paul Coe. On February 6th, the embassy would issue their list of demands, brief and straightforward, asserting their economic, social, political, and cultural rights. Paraphrased in an article documenting the history of the 10 embassy, quote, complete rights to the Northern Territory as a state within Australia and the installation of a primarily Aboriginal state parliament. These rights would include all mining rights to the land, ownership and mining rights of all other Aboriginal reserve lands in Australia, the preservation of all sacred sites in Australia, ownership of areas in major cities, including the mining rights, and compensation for lands that were not able to be returned, starting with $6 billion and including a percentage of the gross national income every year, end quote. Two days later, on February 8th, the leader of the opposition, Go Whitlam of the Labor Party, would visit the embassy to discuss the demands. Over the next couple of months, the town embassy would gain ever greater support as indigenous delegations from as far as the Torres Strait would join the protest. Diplomatic staff from the Soviet Union and non-aligned countries would also meet with the demonstrators. And students from the Australia National University would assist in picketing 
and even opened up a bank account through the Student Representative Council to assist the embassy. The encampment wasn't the only political action the 10 embassy took part in. They would hold discussions on land rights in the broader community, lobby government officials, and organize marches. With 11 tents, broad outreach, and rising support from the wider Aboriginal community and radical groups domestically and internationally, what was supposed to be a temporary sit-in was fast becoming a full-blown protest camp and a direct challenge to the colonialist capitalist system. Though opposition from the right wing and the ruling Liberal Party was expected, there was little they could do legally to remove the embassy. A quote from Aboriginal organizer Roberta Sykes is instructive here, especially for those living outside of Australia. Quote, at the time, the Northern Territory was just that, a territory administered by the politicians and public servants in Canberra and containing quite large sections of Crown land. The government had framed a law that there was to be no camping on Crown land. However, because Crown land in the Northern Territory was home to dispossessed Aboriginal people who had nowhere else to live, this law specifically excluded Aborigines. The expanse of land in front of Parliament House was also Crown land, but it had obviously never entered into the minds of the politicians that Aborigines would set up camp there, end quote. This loophole was a little too inconvenient to the feds. Ralph Hunt, interior minister in the McMahon government, was asked by another politician in parliament about what the government intended to do. His remarks are also instructive in how imperialist and colonialist officials frame debates and events. Quote, I am, of course, well aware that a number of tents have been pitched outside the national parliament and parliament place, the people concerned are Aborigines who are demonstrating in a peaceful way for a case in which they believe. I must say that they have been quiet and they have behaved and cooperated with the police extremely well. But I think that in the future, we will have to look at an ordinance to ensure that Parliament Place is reserved for its purpose, a place for orderly and peaceful demonstration, but not a place upon which people can camp indefinitely, thereby perhaps preventing other people from using it from day to day, end quote. Indeed, Hunt's words were an ominous sign of what was coming and the amount of brutality necessary to remove what the right wing and reactionaries sneered was an eyesore to the right wing press. To that common charge, John Newfung would snap back, if people think this is an eyesore, well, it is the way it is on government settlements. The place is beginning to look as tired as we are. We all wish we were in other places doing other things but we know we have to stay here until we get what we want, end quote. Foley would recollect years later, quote, I mean, they were never the sharpest bunch of politicians in Australia anyway, the McMahon government crew, but this particularly unhinged them. And it was that that prompted them in the rash decision to make us illegal and smash us in front of the eyes of the world, end quote. That May, the government ha hastily passed a law banning camping on unleased crown lands closing that loophole and giving the police the green light to raid the camp. On July 20th, only hours after the law took effect, they proceeded to do so in the only manner police know how, violently and without regard for anyone's safety but their own. The Aboriginal activists and their comrades were undaunted, and only, and only days later they managed to set up another camp. Clashes would continue and culminate in a second raid three days after the first. As Michael Anderson, a embassy activist, described it, 
quote, it was the most violent demonstration I have ever been in. 300 police came marching around German Nazi style from the back of the house. We were just shocked at the way they came out in these big boots and uniforms and circled around us. 18 of us went to jail and 36 police officers were treated in hospital. Paul Coe was the main one hurt. They launched a jackboot straight into the crown jewels. I had a cut lip from a flying fist, end quote. On July 30th, 31st, more than 2,000 Aboriginal people and their supporters would gather at the embassy. The tents went back up, but further clashes would bring it to a momentary end. Over the course of the summer, other tent embassies would rise up. The status of the tent embassy would remain insecure until September 13th when the Supreme Court would rule that the removal of the original tent embassy was illegal as the law had been passed in an improper manner. The technical terminology is that it, was, it had not been notified in the prescribed manner. However, even this was a short-lived victory. As Parliament would reintroduce the anti-camping bill, though in a manner in which its legality would not be questioned, thus bringing an end to the original tent embassy. And now Austin will take over and talk about some of the aftermath cool yeah um thank you t that was uh that was really really good stuff um it's just such such an amazing history that we're all that i'm happy we're all able to discuss today and a lot of the research that i know speaking for myself here a lot of the research i did a lot of it was uh, a fresh topic honestly because as you mentioned at the top leroy a lot of this isn't a lot of people don't talk about some of this stuff outside of uh, outside of Australia, so I'm really happy we're able to go in depth on this topic. Um, so yeah, as T just left off with the tent embassy, uh, the tent embassy would return in 1973 and would play a very fascinating role during the term of Prime Minister Gough Whitlam. Uh, it was October 1973 when 70 Aboriginal protesters staged a sit-in on the steps of Parliament House, and the tent embassy would be reestablished. Uh, the sit-in ended when, when uh, Prime Minister Gough Willem of the Labour Party uh, agreed to meet with protesters. As T kind of touched upon earlier, Whitlam had been to the embassy uh, as opposition leader and had met with the protesters, uh, changing his party's policy to, pro to a promise that Aboriginal people would be allowed land rights. In fact, it was this uh, this interaction that would kind of uh, kick off the process that would uh, eventually lead to the Aboriginal Land Rights Act. Uh, the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, uh, which would be passed in 1976, uh, allowed people in the Northern Territory to claim the title to land if they could provide evidence of their traditional association with it, and as long as the land was not already owned or leased by someone else. Also, something that he touched upon in his section, uh, it also permitted the use of land for mining, but only in agreement with the title holders and with appropriate payments being channeled back to Aboriginal communities through land councils. The introduction of the act led to the temporary suspension of the temp embassy, uh, which at the time was next to the to what was then the Parliament House. Uh, this all would happen in 1976. I think it's also important at this point to to also give a bit of background and context on what would happen to uh, old Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, as his story in and of itself is a, a very fascinating one that speaks to the, in my opinion, I should say, that speaks to the limits of change 
within the electoral system in Australia. And Leroy, uh, you even kind of touched upon this a little bit uh, during your section. Um, and I should, and I should, <laughs> yes. And I should add at this point, uh, either of you feel free to jump in to add any necessary context as I'm going to give just a brief uh, rundown here of, of what exactly happened to Gough Whitlam. Yeah. So yeah, Whitlam's Labour Party government, uh, which had been elected in 1972 with a small majority in the, the House of Representatives, um, though they had that small majority, the Senate's balance of power was held by the, uh, the Democratic Labour Party, which typically supported the, uh, the liberal opposition. In October 1975, just a few years after their election, the opposition would use its control of the Senate to defer passage of appropriations bills, which were needed to finance government expenditure. Uh, these bills had been passed by the House of Representatives, which once again was Labor Party controlled. The opposition stated that they would continue their stance unless Whitlam called an election for the House of Representatives and urged Governor General Kerr to dismiss Whitlam unless he agreed to their demand. Whitlam believed that Kerr would not dismiss him, and Kerr did nothing to disabuse Whitlam of this notion, at the time, that is. On, 11th, on the 11th of November, 1975, Whitlam intended to call a half-Senate election in an attempt to break this deadlock. When he went to seek Kerr's approval of the election, Kerr instead dismissed him as prime minister and shortly thereafter installed Fraser in his place. Acting quickly, before all parliamentarians became aware of the change of government, uh, Fraser and his allies were able to secure passage of the appropriations bills, and Kerr would dissolve Parliament for a double dissolution election. Um, a lot to, uh, to take in there, but one of the biggest reasons this is important context to mention, in my opinion, is that, as Leroy mentioned earlier, there are allegations of CIA involvement, which prompted the dismissal of this CIA involvement that is prompting prompting the dismissal of Gough Whitlam, who had been pursuing a, a social democratic policy program in Australia, which we've kind of touched upon. Uh, during the crisis, Whitlam himself would even allege that uh, Liberal Party leaders had close links to the CIA. Subsequent, subsequent <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. Subsequently, it was alleged even that Kerr himself acted, the governor general, that is, acted on behalf of the U.S. government in procuring Willem's dismissal. One of the most common allegations is that the CIA had influenced CARE's decision through groups uh, that CARE was a part of, such as the uh, what's known as the Congress for Cultural Freedom, uh, an anti-communist conservative group that was later revealed to literally be receiving CIA funding. Um, something else I'd like to note, uh, uh, spies within the Soviet Union, specifically uh, a spy by the name of Christopher Boyce, who had uh, infiltrated the CIA, mentioned uh, that one of the reasons the CIA wanted Whitlam removed from office was because he was threatening to close U.S. military bases in Australia, That's right. including Pine Gap, which is utilized as a major surveillance base for both the CIA and the NSA to this very day. Hmm. Um, I think, though, yeah, I think the whole story of Gough Whitlam is an illustration, and quoting T here, I think this is something he said uh, when we were kind of prepping this. I think the whole story is an illustration illustration of the limits of social democracy, yeah. and not just that, but the strength of U.S. hegemony in the world, which exactly. has proved the ma one of the major roadblocks against indigenous struggles across the, across the globe, and as we see, even in the Aboriginal struggle in Australia. 
So uh, going back to the original story here, after Whitlam was dismissed, uh, the tent embassy protest continued temporarily at various sites in Canberra, including the site later used by the new Parliament House, uh, but would return to its original setting on the 20th anniversary in 1992, and it would become a permanent permanent site uh, in 1992. It's important to note that 1992 would also be the year that saw the landmark Eddie Mabo case in Queensland, where the High Court finally or formally recognized native title as part of Australian land law. The decision overturned the doctrine that Australia was terra nullius, as Leroy mentioned earlier, land uh, belonging to no one. And it would lead to the Native Title Act of 1993 and the formation of uh, the National Native Title Tribunal, which mediates overland claims and registers native titles. In the years since, uh, the embassy uh, continues to receive visitors, as it still exists, uh, continues to receive visitors from around the world, inviting, invited to place gum leaves on the ceremonial fire as a symbol of protection during their journeys in Australia. A lot has changed for Aboriginal peoples in the last few decades, but the struggle for decolonization is an ongoing one, right? Absolutely. It doesn't end until Aborigines have full land rights in Australia. Absolutely. In 2012, Michael Anderson, one of the original uh tent embassy uh, protesters, as as T mentioned, and one of the last surviving founders of that first tent embassy himself said that while many things have changed, Aboriginal people people are still being deceived over their land. He says that having native title is not the same as land rights and that Aboriginal people should be allowed to own the land fully and benefit from it in the same way as everyone else without the need for government intervention. He even says that he firmly believes that his people should be allowed to take full sovereignty and control of their traditional communities, just as he and his co-founders first demanded 40 years ago. Um, such a, such an, an incredible story. Um, I'm still personally speaking for myself, and I'm sure you'll both agree, I'm still really just blown away by the tremendous courage put on display by the 10 embassy and how the Aboriginal struggle really is one that mirrors uh, decolonial struggles across the globe. Uh, the parallels really are, are very remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's one thing that um, TU were really emphasizing, like leading up to this, the fact that you were blown away of how, how, how much parallel there is between the struggle here with the Aboriginals, the Black and Native American struggles in the U.S. and all the decolonial struggles around the world. Like it's almost as if oppression has these common features and fighting against it has common features as well. And that all these things are linked and that the only way to achieve liberation in one place is to work toward liberation everywhere. Damn right, man. Like for real. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I had never heard of this story until uh, I started doing research uh, for this episode. Yeah. Um I'm uh, to my shame, honestly, because, you know, as I read more and more into it, it's it's just it it blew me away. It really did. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting and I'd like to emphasize to any listeners that there is you know, this is an ongoing story. It's not just history. Um, As Austin mentioned, the tent embassy, a permanent institution was established in 92. Um, So. That has, you know, for folks like, you know, us, you know, doing our little contribution in terms of spread, you know, sharing the story and trying to spread the story. Um, it's it's easy. You know, I want to emphasize it's not necessarily just history. You know, it's ongoing. And 
what's what's what fascinated me um, is that, you know, in some of the research, there's a lot of great documentaries out there about it. Uh, there's one documentary actually that was made around the time. Yep. It's the only documentary that has actual footage. You can actually see footage of the police raids um, and you can see footage of this the community that they were establishing there. One of in part of my research, one interesting parallel is has to do with the aftermath. Um, the aftermath both in uh, and and this is where I really saw a lot of parallels. Um, between the uh, Black Power movement in the United States and the Black Power movement in Australia. I don't know if any of us mentioned it, but there there was a Black Panther Party chapter in Australia. Um, Some of the organizers were actually involved in uh, planning, you know, what was originally just supposed to be a sit-in. But one of the interesting parallels is that the the debates that they had down there and the debates that uh, organizers and activists had in the United States are so similar. They, in the aftermath of the, uh, you know, after the end of the early 70s, you know, the really peak of radical organizing, it seems almost worldwide, there yeah. was this argument over whether do we try to change the system from the inside or do we continue a, a more anti-establishment radical opposition so you know in the united states you know the the big debate was do we run in elections or do we continue street activism in australia especially around the aboriginal struggle it seems like you know the big debate was do we enter the federal bureaucracy and do we attempt to reform the burgeoning social democracy to empower aboriginal communities or do we continue the more radical trajectory uh, that the tent embassy, uh, you know, uh, look to or promise. Um, it, it's it's remarkable. You can you could probably put uh, the words of you know organizers in the United States and in and in Australia next to each other, and they'd be um, nearly identical. I mean, yeah. it's 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 really a remarkable and astounding story. Just um, I was just go say, ahead. Just sorry. Just quickly on that note. Um, remember. This was around the time of the Vietnam War, and Sydney, specifically in Australia, was a stopover to and from Vietnam for a lot of U.S. soldiers. So especially oh. a lot of uh, so especially a lot of like the disgruntled, um, disillusioned Black soldiers were talking to Aboriginal folks here in Australia, giving them literature from the Black Panthers, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, providing them with all this revolutionary literature that they were being exposed in the U.S., dropping it here, and then the Aboriginal folks were. Um, making it their own, but also um, so, sort of, you know, like sympathizing with the struggle over there because they saw, like, like we've been talking about, the parallels between the two, which is which is absolutely fascinating. And um, I think sort of going back to what you're talking about, the whole debate of do we run in elections or do we enter the federal bureaucracy? Post Gough Whitlam, we did see like an explosion of um, Aboriginal-led sort of community grassroots. Um, programs and institutions and stuff like that that did grow. But um, the argument on the other side as well is that a lot of Aboriginal activists who sort of lived through all this were also saying that those Aboriginal leaders who did enter the bureaucracy, to, to be part of the bureaucracy, you have to be part of the bureaucracy. So they were sort of losing their radicalness. They were sort of losing their um, passion for what it was that they were there to do in the beginning and just became another cog 
in the settler colonial system. So I think that's the debate that should be had and is still being had, whether we still go face you know, go face to face on the streets, on the front lines and street activism, like you said, or do we risk um, watering down any sort of passion, any sort of um, organization that was created by going through the bureaucracy? Because, you know, we always talk about there's a right way for activism, there's a right way to do things in a wrong way. And within like this respectability politics that exists within a, uh, our forms of Western liberal democracy, um, they want us to go through institutions. But that whole hegemonic sort of system that exists serves to water it down. So I think um, personally that if that was the route to take, it needs to be sort of a balance of both to sort of um, check to so almost like a checks and balances sort of thing. That way street activism doesn't get out of hand and just sort of becomes counterproductive and that we're not losing any sort of commitment and passion organization by I don't want to say buying into the colonial system, but sort of infiltrating or becoming part of that big bureaucracy, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, speaking speaking for myself, I suppose, I know this is somewhat of a, I mean, we've already touched upon this multiple times, but I guess this is somewhat of a hot take for some people. And just basing off my own personal experiences, I really believe trying to change things within the system it's almost certainly a waste of, of time completely because of the reasons that you've outlined. You know, the system is built in a way that prevents change, that uh, co-ops change, right? So trying to fix the system from within, you're just going to be a part of that self-fulfilling prophecy, so to speak. You're exactly. only going to serve the system further by for, by uh, by continuing its goals because yeah. it's built that way for a reason, which is why – like I said, in my own personal experiences, I, I think it's almost entirely a waste of time to try and work in the system. Uh, you know, it's I I I agree with y'all. I'm gonna push back just a, a little bit. Um, I I but I you know I want to emphasize that I do agree with you all that it's largely pointless from their perspective from the perspective of those who say that we need to uh, enter the political system. That is the only way to make practical change. It is true, and you mentioned it as well, there was an explosion of community programs um, that in Australia in the aftermath of these of this activism. Um, and it is true. I mean, you know, you look at the United States, the, you know, one of the most famous cases of court or examples is that, you know, the Black Panther Party's breakfast program, you know, people say that, you know, the federal government started feeding kids because of because of Black Panthers, because they were afraid of it. I mean, that is an example of of positive change within the system. And you're not going to get those uh, programs administered well unless it's administered by those who have a passion for the project, which kind of necessitates people entering into the system. Now, obviously, like I, I'm with you guys, like. It's it's this this debate has been going on forever. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. They yeah. had this argument in 1973, in 1993, and I'm sure in you know 2043, if we're you know if climate change hasn't destroyed us all, we'll be having this debate then. Yeah, I also just briefly push back on that to a certain extent. <laughs> <laughs> With first of all, fuck Let you. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, 
No, but fuck, uh, no, me, but fuck you. No, but I, you know, you say that the Black Panthers breakfast program is an example of working within the system. Well, I just disagree with that. I think that's an example of the exact opposite. I would say it was because they were not working within the system that the the system was kind of forced to adapt, you know, and that if they had pursued, if like if Huey or whatever the fuck just like joined a. Uh, I don't know, some local community group or whatever that was part of the government and tried to do it within there, that nothing would have fucking happened. They had to work outside of the system in order to, to push it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you there. Like, And I just want to emphasize, I didn't mean to imply that the Panthers worked through the system. I'm saying that the people who entered the system would administer the programs uh, that were uh, originally uh, created by the Black Panthers and their you know, radical street activism. I know my history, bro. Totally. <laughs> anyway, no, something else, real quick, something else I wanted to touch upon. Uh, speaking, in fact, speaking of the Black Panthers mutual aid programs, um, I thought it was so fascinating in, in some of the research that I was doing and some of the documentaries that even that you, Leroy, had recommended. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that the Aborigines and the protests in Australia mentioned as something that really caught their eye was the Black Panthers' mutual aid programs. Yeah. You know, they mentioned specifically how seeing what they were doing to, to help their own communities, to help their communities who were to give them food because they were starving now, made such an impression on them. And shit like that is so important. You know, it's so important to show people an example of actual community solidarity so they can see how powerful we are when we're coming together and working together. And uh, basically what that is all to say is if you don't like mutual aid, you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> Exactly. Because it was that thing that if they're not going to feed us, we're going to feed us. You know what I mean? And um, exactly. one of the big things that they were pushing back on, I'm talking about the Ab Aboriginal people um, now, um, in their struggle leading up to the establishment of the Ted Embassy is that they were largely been, they were put onto reserves. So almost like the reservation system in the U.S., where every aspect of their existence was controlled by the government um, under the concept of protection. So basically the government set up these laws and these reservations to protect Aboriginal people from themselves. You know what I mean? So they couldn't work wherever they wanted. They couldn't control their own money. The parents couldn't, parents didn't even have like rights over their children. The state had rights before the parents did over the children, which is why you have the state take kids away from their families because they were unfit parents, right? So they were put with nice white folk and raised like that. And that was what became part of the Stone Generations. So a lot of the pushback that we saw with the Black Panther Party of Australia and the Tent Embassy and all everything that was happening around that time was demanding their rights to not only land, but to their own labor, to their own finances, to their own just rights that white people took for granted. And one of the things um, that they did was set up these mutual aid things like the Black Panthers in the U.S., like saying like, look, we can't control much, but let's control what we can control. Let's control feeding our people and let's grow this. And obviously the colonial government pushed back as we've been talking about this entire time. And I, th I think also I want to add something real quick. Um, you know, it, it's common, especially now uh, for a lot of, you know, a lot of people not to realize that decolonization isn't just some kind of liberal politics uh you know this kind of it it's very much tied to the the social struggle the the uh 
the economic struggle, you know, in the demands of the tent embassy, what are they, what are most of the demands around, you know, not, you know, the mining rights. Um, One of the direct inspirations for this movement was that just incredible strike uh, put on decolonization is integral to socialist politics just as socialist politics is integral to decolonization. 100%. I think, you know, a lot of liberals and, I mean, sadly, a a fair number of socialists, whether in good faith or bad, uh, seek to set them up as kind of like opposites or against each other, Mm. when that is just simply not the case in history, in in the theory, in the discussion. Um, it's, it's, It's a false choice. You know, you cannot be a socialist without decolonization and you can't have decolonization without uh, socialism. It's I mean, it's they're they're one in the to me, they they go hand in hand, you know. Yeah. And um, just on that, um, you get a lot of people who are more orthodox economic determinists. So basically the whole class first type people. But capitalism in itself is a colonial structure so by definition to fight against capitalism you have to fight against colonialism you have to work towards decolonizing like by definition for me absolutely imperialism is just a stage of capitalism exactly right exactly my god i'm i'm trying to find there's this great quote from um James Connolly, the uh, the Irish uh, yeah. leader, um, that kind of that really uh, kind of di- uh, illustrates like what we're getting at here. Um, this is this is a quote from James Connolly um, back when Ireland was uh, under the boots of the British. Uh, quote: If you remove the English army tomorrow and hoist the green flag over Dublin Castle, unless you set about the organization of the Socialist Republic. Your efforts will be in vain. England will still rule you. She would rule you through her capitalists, through her landlords, through her financiers, through the whole array of commercial and individualist institutions she has planted in this country and watered with the tears of our mothers and the blood of our of our martyrs. End quote. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Like, look at look at the U.S. Like, the American Revolution wasn't really a revolution in our sense. It was just they wanted to implement Western culture, so to speak, or English culture on their own terms. Nothing really changed. It only changed marginally for white people. Shit, a lot of them were pissed that they couldn't fuck it, that the British was were preventing them from crossing over the uh, Appalachians uh, into uh, the Ohio River Valley. Um, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, I mean, it's it's that is a that's I mean, that's a that's a big one. right? I mean, that's a big subject. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, anything else, boys? Uh, I think, uh, yeah, this was a, a hell of a discussion. I had just really heavy topic. Um, obviously, if we wanted to, we could talk for <laughs> hours and hours about this. But uh, but no, I think this was a really, really good discussion. No, and I want to emphasize, there is a ton of resources out there um, a lot of fantastic articles, documentaries, interviews, books out there. Um, yeah. This, there's so much out there. I would highly encourage um, any listeners, especially those outside of Australia, 
to yeah. definitely look into this topic. I sure as shit had no had never heard of this until you, you know, providentially, thankfully, uh, suggested it, Leroy. Yeah. Um, so thank you as well for that. Um, this was this was fascinating. Yeah, we'll um we'll definitely link to some of our sources like when we post this, so those of you who are listening can check them out. Definitely a lot of like you said, a lot of documentaries, movies, sources out there on this on on the subject. And um, but to be fair, like don't get hot down on yourself too much. Um, is just a thing that happens as well. Because I was actually talking to my wife who was born and raised and educated in Australia. I just asked her like, so what did you guys learn about Aboriginal history in schools? Nothing. Just the basic liberal stuff that they were here, that um, James Cook came, they were settled, they were, you know, weren't treated too nicely, but now we're all Australian, so everything's all good. Basically how we learn about Native Americans and slavery and stuff in the U.S. How, is, how we don't learn about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, shit, Austin and I are from Virginia, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you know the history of the lead up to the Civil War is all kinds of fucked up bullshit. Yeah, incredible. Anyway, so um, I reckon we leave it there, yeah? Hell yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Put a bow on it. Absolutely. Again, massive, massive topic, um, but a very fascinating topic. So on that note, we'll leave it there and um, we'll be back later with hopefully another interesting topic. Take it easy, guy. Cool. Cheers, y'all. Yeah, take it easy, brother. All right. Take it easy, fam out there. Bye-bye.